0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloronipa with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling in The Post. This is Peter Jamison from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, May 7th. Today, the limits of civilian power over police and the stark difference in how the rich and poor are treated for COVID in Venezuela. So right now we're having this huge public discussion and debate over how to hold police officers more accountable. So tell me about some of the solutions that have been raised to address that.
1: You've seen a lot of discussion about this.
0: Nicole Dunka is an investigative reporter for The Post.
1: You see bans on no-knock raids in some parts of the country in response to uh, Breonna Taylor's killing.
0: The City Council of Louisville, Kentucky, is outlawing
1: no-knock warrants nearly three months after police there shot and killed Breonna Taylor. A no-knock warrant allowed three plainclothes officers to burst into her apartment while she was sleeping. You have seen policies about body cameras. KCPD patrol officers will be issued body cameras. It's one of the reforms the department is making following the death of George Floyd. Another solution that people think about is a civilian review board. The gist of it is that people who aren't the police are called upon to police the police.
0: And what does that actually mean? Like, how are regular people supposed to police the police?
1: So we know that the justice system isn't always effective at holding police officers accountable for misconduct. So many people have called for civilian oversight as another layer of accountability. This means asking ordinary citizens in different communities to help hold police officers accountable in an independent way, basically through a panel of volunteers or as a city employee, works as an auditor or any other number of ways. Sometimes cities will create a panel that can take complaints from the public, for example. So if you had an interaction with a police officer that you felt was inappropriate or was violent in some way, you can lodge that complaint with a panel. And in some way it will be investigated. Civilian boards might look into an audit use of force or shootings or something that might lead to policy changes for police departments. There are more than 160 civilian oversight boards across the country right now.
0: And it seems like this is also part of the conversation on a federal level of, okay, if we need to change something about policing, maybe this is sort of the go-to option.
2: Now we have seen video after video after video of people being beat and people being killed. That is the reason for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act.
1: So Congress recently introduced the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Two
2: measures of the bill hold police officers accountable, and then other measures of the bill support raising the standards and accreditation process of policing in the United States.
1: And in that, it actually allows the Department of Justice to give money to communities that want to start up their own civilian oversight entities. And it also gives a federal definition of what civilian oversight really looks like. And with that change, you're going to see a lot of communities who are eager to use civilian oversight as a solution to some of the problems in policing that the community members see.
0: So what were the questions that you were asking in this investigation into these civilian review boards? Like, what were you trying to find out?
1: Well, we wanted to know if they worked. We wanted to hear from a lot of people who served on some of these boards to see if they thought that they were actually making a difference in their communities. And what we found out is that when communities try to allow citizens to hold police officers accountable in some way or or to investigate misconduct— We saw that police unions, police departments, and even sometimes politicians, they fought back.
0: That's fascinating. How did you
1: find that out? We reached out to people at maybe more than 30 oversight offices across the country, and we talked to them about their experiences and whether they felt like what they were doing was making a difference And we just heard from a lot of people that they felt like there was resistance from the police in so many ways. And so there are a lot of instances in which we saw police unions or police departments or even politicians kind of weakening these boards in a way that a lot of these board members felt were undermining what they were there to do. Can you give me an example of that? I'm thinking about Ricky L. Jones, who is in Louisville on their Citizens Commission for Police Accountability at the time of Breonna Taylor's death. Uh, And so the way that board is actually set up they can't investigate anything on their own. They can only review closed police investigations of shootings. So it would have been a long time before they ever got to see the Breonna Taylor case, and they wouldn't have been able to recommend any discipline in that case. Um, So to hear people like Ricky L. Jones tell it, it's a very powerless board. He's referred to it in the past as a sham or a toothless tiger, but he just thought it really wasn't able to hold police accountable for some of the
0: most egregious things they may do. I'm curious more about how these civilian review boards got started and the powers that they were supposed to have. In an ideal world, what would be the ways in which these boards can actually be successful in enforcing changes?
1: Some of the most important things are making sure that they have independence from the police, making sure that civilians are able to make their decisions without any pressure um, from the police. In some boards, you might be able to recommend discipline for these officers who are accused of misconduct or if they violated any policies. Um, But what we found is that many of these boards could not recommend discipline at all. And even if they could, the discipline could often be overturned by a police chief. We also did a deep dive in Albuquerque. And in 2012, The Department of Justice actually started investigating the Albuquerque Police Department's use of force, especially its use of deadly force. And what they found is that over four years, police officers there had fatally shot 20 people. And they found that the existing civilian review office had been too forgiving of that use of deadly force. Albuquerque entered a settlement agreement with the Justice Department to get its use of force and police shootings under control. And under that agreement, they decided to remake that civilian review office into a new civilian police oversight agency. This was supposed to be an agency that would be stronger and that would be able to hold the police accountable for use of force more than the other office. But we saw that at nearly every turn, the police union or the police department resisted a lot of the changes that were supposed to be in place from the settlement agreement. And so you saw, for example, the police union suing the city as soon as the civilian oversight agency was created. And they basically said that some of the powers that the city was trying to grant to this oversight agency would violate the rights of its officers. So we talked to Veronica Ajanel, whose father, Valente Acosta Bustios, was killed by police.
2: We're very close, though. He's the one that was pretty much always there
3: for me.
1: Veronica told her fiancé to call the police so that they could check on her father.
0: Albuquerque Police Department Operator 7027. How may I help you? Yeah, hi. um, I was going to see if there would possibly be any way you guys could maybe send somebody to my father-in-law's house. Nobody's seen or heard from him. And
1: when they went to go check on her father, they they discovered discovered that he had a warrant. And when her father did not want to be arrested, they followed him into his home and shot and killed him because he had been holding a shovel that he had lifted above his head. When we talked to the police department about the Acosta Bustios case, a police spokesman said that a criminal investigation had basically found that the shooting was justified. But Veronica thought the opposite. And now they're still waiting for the agency to rule on the case more than a year later. It feels really, like, awful because it feels like uh, he's gone because that happened. They need to start changing something. They can't just be killing people like that, you know? Nobody deserves to die in such a manner. What we've seen is that Albuquerque's Civilian Oversight Agency sometimes never even reviews these shooting cases or in some cases will exonerate the officers who are responsible for the deaths. So we're hearing from these families whose relatives were killed by Albuquerque police, and some of them are feeling like this layer of civilian oversight isn't working for them. It's failing to hold accountable the police officers who are responsible for their family members' death.
0: Why aren't these boards more powerful to begin with? If it sounds like they are in many ways um, outmaneuvered by police departments who are trying to protect their own power and their own independence, then how come there's not an effort that's more aimed at kind of giving that strengthening these boards in the first place so that there are explicit rules that say you cannot be overruled by a police department?
1: In a lot of these places, the police union or the police department will oppose some of those stronger changes. I mean, we've seen a couple of cities that have had the police unions place clauses in their collective bargaining agreements that basically say this entity can't do an independent investigation. In some cases, states have already passed laws that restrict a lot of the powers of these civilian boards already. In at least 22 states, there are officers' bills of rights, which have very strict limitations on how you're supposed to investigate a police accused of misconduct. And so those have been in place in some places for decades and in others for just a few years
0: I'm curious, what is the argument made by people or agencies who are opposing these civilian review boards? Like, what do they say about why this actually isn't the right way to try to bring more accountability into policing? They say
1: that regular citizens don't have the training that is necessary to investigate police officers of misconduct. We talked to Jim Pasco, who is the executive director of the National Fraternal Order of Police. And he told us that it was like putting a plumber in charge of investigating plane crashes. He thought that civilians don't have the expertise to be able to judge whether police officers are acting appropriately in the course of their duties. But we also Talked to many civilian oversight officials who felt like this was just the wrong way of looking at things. I mean, a lot of these boards have lawyers and auditors as part of these boards, and they actually argue that having an independent view of these issues is good and will allow people to be unbiased when they're deciding on the disposition of some of these complaints.
0: You know, what it feels like to me is that. We as a country are kind of seeking easy or straightforward solutions to the problem of police shootings or accountability or what a more just system would look like in the future. But I think in this case and in so many other cases, just putting the policy in place or starting the board or whatever is actually a lot more complicated and that just having the thing isn't necessarily going to fix the problem.
1: What you're saying, Martine, is really similar to what I've been hearing from oversight officials and community members across the country. Just having a civilian review board or an independent monitor doesn't cut it. They actually have to have power, um, because to hear a lot of these people tell it, it just becomes some form of window dressing if there's no actual power. And the thing is, civilian review boards and civilian oversight has been around for a long time, some of the first civilian review boards started at the turn of the 20th century. And for a lot of these boards, they're just versions of older boards sometimes. So you've seen in a lot of communities that civilian oversight exists, but it hasn't been able to make a tangible change. And so a lot of these communities are struggling if these boards aren't given actual power.
0: Nicole Dunka is an investigative reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Sabi Robinson and edited by Rina Flores.
3: It was very difficult for us to find a hospital. We had to find out a different way so she won't die. I met a doctor who's been working with COVID patients. He told me, we're gonna have to hospitalize her at home. These are all the meds that you need to buy. Well, thank God the pharmacies have all the medicines needed for the treatment. The only thing was that I had to spend $2,000 in all the medicines needed. Thank God I had some savings that I was gonna use to invest in machinery for in order to grow the company. But uh, I had to use that money for the medicines.
2: My husband and I, which we, we are like middle class. We make like a thousand dollars a month. And with that, we have to pay for everything. You know, we have two kids. We have to pay for a pool. We pay well, groceries, everything, house. And we barely make it through the end of the month. So how can we come up with $21,000 we don't have it under, you know, under the bed or in the bank.
3: My name is uh, Pedro Rojas. I own a small chocolate factory. I live in Caracas, Venezuela.
2: My name is Victoria Gonzalez. I'm from Caracas, Venezuela. I am a journalist by profession.
0: Like so many Venezuelans, the families of Pedro and Victoria have been devastated by the coronavirus pandemic, and it's a public health crisis made worse by extreme income inequality in the country.
2: You're not finished grieving your loved one when you're thinking about, you know, the money and it's unfair and unjust and you feel frustrated and overwhelmed and angry with the system, basically, with with the insurance company, with the, also the clinic, because of course they don't give you too many options. It's like you have to pay and that's it.
3: Living every single day with the doubt that, if what if something happened right now? I don't have the money to cover this. Well, I cannot explain you that. I'm trying not to think about that, but it's a reality.
0: Our producer Emma Telkov spoke with Anthony Fayola about Venezuela and how a pandemic has collided with an economic crisis.
4: What does the coronavirus outbreak look like in Venezuela right now?
5: So last year, the Venezuelans really escaped the worst of the crisis, partly because they're a little bit more isolated geographically uh, than many of the other countries in South America that are more globalized and have large mega cities um, where people go in and out all the time. Um, But what we have seen in the last several weeks and months is that the Brazilian variant of the virus has seeped into Venezuela and made the situation far worse. Our understanding is that it's very difficult these days to find any real hospital beds in the capital of Caracas, and it's becoming increasingly hard to find available hospital beds In the countryside, there are shortages of oxygen. There are acute shortages of medicines that are being used to treat the coronavirus, and and this is made worse by the fact that you know Venezuela has been suffering a health crisis from well before the pandemic began.
4: Can you talk about how Venezuela's health system was equipped to handle an outbreak like this?
5: So you know, Venezuela is essentially a broken socialist state where the public health system is basically destroyed. Hospitals are under-equipped and underfunded, and they have been for years. There was one recent survey that found that 92% of x-ray machines did not work, and 68% of facilities lacked consistent running water. Uh, I myself have been in Venezuelan hospitals and infectious disease wards where there was no pain on the windows um, separating the rooms, where there were a lack of masks and gloves for health workers. The situation inside many of the public hospitals was a disaster, let's say, even before the pandemic struck. And I think what they're finding is that the pandemic has just brought a lot of those very disturbing shortages and problems home to roost.
4: And how has President Maduro's government responded to the crisis?
5: Well, uh, they have responded in various ways, and a lot of Venezuelans, I think, would argue uh, not necessarily well. You know, they have come up with some of their own serums, which they claim are miracle drugs, and have sought to peddle those to the nation as a possible solution. However, doctors in Venezuela say that this stuff is really essentially snake oil and is not really fit for purpose when dealing with the coronavirus. They have struggled, I think, especially now that the crisis has gotten markedly worse. And the result of that is many Venezuelans in in what is ostensibly a socialist state are being forced to privately pay for care in order to ensure that they or their loved ones actually receive treatment.
2: So
4: on that note, how might things be different for a wealthy family in Venezuela looking for care compared to like a lower income family? What are the options available to them?
5: Well, for the most wealthy, their options are most likely going to be a private hospital. However, a, a private hospital is incredibly expensive in Venezuela relative to the average salaries of the people. It is only the very few and wealthy elites that are able to afford that. It could run two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000 a day. You're talking about uh, basically a king's ransom for the majority of Venezuelans. However, one... One notch down the social ladder, you have the other option of paying for private care, which is not quite as expensive as uh, going into a a private hospital. You can hire doctors to come to your home daily. You can hire 24-hour nurses. You know, these people are additionally outfitting their apartments or homes with hospital beds, with IVs, with oxygen tanks, you name it. I mean, they're essentially converting some of their homes into many hospital wards. This is way too expensive for the vast majority of Venezuelans, but the middle class, the upper middle class is able to afford it. Unfortunately, what we're finding is that it's draining them of much of their resources. You know, one of the families that we spoke with talked about spending the majority of their life savings in order to, to make sure that three of their family members who had caught the coronavirus received proper treatment at home. So it's not always a case of the mega-rich enjoying an elite access. It's also the middle class that are emptying their bank accounts in order to try to stay alive.
4: And what about if they can't do either of those options?
5: I mean, for some of them, the simple reality is that they languish at home and they watch themselves or their loved ones die. Um, One of the biggest problems is the cost of oxygen. It is still rather expensive in Venezuela to uh, obtain oxygen privately. And as we well know, for people who have harsh symptoms of the coronavirus, severe symptoms, they really do require that. And what we're finding, including from people that we talk to ourselves, is that they find themselves in a situations where they're literally sitting there and watching their loved ones gasp for breath with very little they can do. And ultimately, some of them have simply passed away.
4: I know a lot of the hospitals don't have a lot of the equipment that they need or, or the care is just not that good. Is that what you've heard too?
3: Yeah, Talking about uh, oxygen concentrators. By the one week after my mother got sick, it was pretty much impossible for someone to find a concentrator.
4: How did you find it? What did you do?
3: (sighs) This doctor gave me a couple of uh, persons that uh, rent this uh, machine, and the third person that I called had it, and she rented it to me. It was... uh, $35 per day for two weeks.
2: Wow. (laughs) It
4: must have felt just so stressful also to have to be just calling people and hoping someone had a machine that you could rent.
3: Definitely. It's been one of the most stressful times in my life, to be honest. Seeing my mother like that. The possibility of dying. I mean, I did everything I could. I didn't care about anything but to have my man with the best possible treatment.
4: How does the situation in Venezuela compare to elsewhere in the region?
5: Well, in some ways, it's sort of the worst situation of the haves and the have-nots, simply because, you know, Venezuela has been brought so low by the economic crisis that it's been weathering for the last several years, and again, way before the pandemic. But that said, you know, we're seeing this manifested in similar ways across Latin America. Of course, it is one of the, if not the most, unequal region in the world. And essentially, the pandemic has played out as a mirror of that inequality. Quality, where public hospitals are essentially simply not offering or not able to offer the same level of care as private hospitals. There have been studies that have shown that it is more likely in some countries, particularly there was one study in Mexico that showed that those COVID patients who were admitted to public hospitals were more likely to die than the patients that were admitted to private hospitals. And again, we're seeing this play out in Brazil, we're seeing this play out in Peru. It is not unique to Venezuela to see this massive gap in care, but it just stands out there given the severity of the economic crisis that exists.
4: And you mentioned the really contagious variant, first identified in Brazil, that has now jumped into other countries in South America. Do we have any way of knowing, you know, how many of the cases in Venezuela are of this contagious variant?
5: It's very difficult to know that, partly because they are testing so few specimens. But what we do know from talking to doctors on the ground that are involved in the process is that without question the brazilian variant has been detected there and given the timing of the recent surge in venezuela the assumption is that it is at least being partially fueled by the brazilian variant in a sense brazil in a in a wider way has become a super spreader in latin america in the sense that Countries all over the region, especially those that border Brazil, are seeing bigger and bigger outbreaks, partly due to the fact that the Brazilian variant is spreading in those countries. Some countries are seeing, in fact, some of the highest death rates and some of the highest infection rates they've seen since the pandemic began.
4: Is there any end in sight here? How's the vaccination effort going in Venezuela, for example?
5: It's going painfully slow, as it is in most parts of Latin America. And again, there are some exceptions. For instance, in Chile, They have been very proactive about securing contracts for vaccines. And they're among a handful of nations that are actually way out ahead in the race to get herd immunity. But they are very much an outlier in the region. And in Venezuela, as well as in much of the rest of Latin America, you're talking about an incredibly low percent of people who have been vaccinated vis-a-vis what we've seen in the United States, for instance. That said, you know, there are some hopes that we will begin to see an acceleration of more vaccines provided to these countries that are in desperate need. You know, it's begun to slowly happen. But I think for the majority of Latin Americans and definitely for Venezuelans, they're just feeling that this process is going laboriously slow. And you can imagine the frustration on the ground.
2: You don't know uh, what's going to happen to you just to think. I've seen people that get headaches, and that's it or nothing and well people like my mother-in-law who just go to bed and the next day she's completely unstable and has to get to the clinic and dies five days later you know you're grieving you're in shock and then they tell you that you owe the clinic a huge amount of money that you can't really pay it's like overwhelmed. actually that that's the word it's overwhelming you can't think of everything at the moment so We focused on on getting her out of the clinic to cremation and, you know, like solving that problem. But now we have to come up with that sum. We don't have it. And, you know, it's like grieving two ways you grieve for the person and you also grieve for what's happening to you.
0: Anthony Fiola is the South America and Caribbean Bureau Chief for the Post. The story was produced by Emma Talcoff. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Mohammed. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnick and Brenny Frenovsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from the Washington Post.